Hey, what's up, my people? Welcome to today's episode. Hope you're all doing well because I'm feeling really good. I'm here alongside Yudi, my cousin and unofficial brother, and it's the start of the European Championships. Let's go! Let's go! Are you, are you as excited as, as I am or, or not? Uh, I'm excited. I'm ex- I thought you were about to burst into it's coming home then, but like, no, you're not. Ah, you, you mug. What are you thinking? Is you think I'm going to say that? <laughs> I just like this the is... excitement just came over your face. Like the fist bumps. Were nah. like, I just, I felt nah, it coming. Nah. Like I, I thought nah, I could nah. feel it I just, coming, so. I just, I just love, I love watching like high quality football. You know what I mean? Like I like, I love all football, but like high quality top tier football, like that excites me. And these championships, especially European ones, like they're, they're, they're good, you know, they're good. But anyway, how are you feeling? I'm good. I'm excited. Friday's kickoff. Okay. So, yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. G- games are kicking off today and the release of the episode. So some people that are listening to this before the Euros, this is like the Euro warm-up, yeah? Is it, is yeah. it pre-what? You're What's welcome. it called? Pre-drinks? You're <laughs> welcome. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. Well, are you ready to throw some hot takes out there? Uh, I'll try. All right, cool, 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 cool. All right. So who thinks is going to win it? France. Next question. Who thinks is going to be the biggest disappointment? how do you even hold on hold on <laughs> biggest dis- how do you who like- do you think is going to be the biggest disappointment not as an individual but as a team because uh, let's be clear because you've got like because you've got like france belgium spain portugal england to name but a few who are like you know they're being spoken of very highly here so who's going to be you, the biggest disappointment throw- okay okay i i would probably go rogue take but i'm going to go belgium Belgium going to be the biggest disappointments. Okay. Yeah. Another stat as well. Apparently, I think Italy haven't lost in like 22 games or something. But that's just, you know, they're going about their business calmly. So you think Belgium, yeah? You think Belgium going to fail? Okay, cool. Um, who do you think the top scorer is going to be? Hmm. I'm going to go with Olivier Giroud. Really? Okay. So listen, we're not here to sit on the fence. This isn't safe take time. <laughs> Listen, you might you might want to get back on the fence for that particular take, but it's fine, whatever. Yeah. Anything is possible. I was thinking more like Lukaku, but you've already banished them to get knocked out in the group phases, so that's a shame. Um, and who do you think the tournament MVP is going to be? Um, I'm going to go with... Mm, here Ooh, we go. This is, this is tough, actually. Tournament MVP, N'Golo Kante. Kante, okay. So you're liking that Kante energy at the minute, yeah? I am. Okay, cool. I think that could work, but I think they always want to lean towards attackers. So I'm going to go for an Mbappe. I think if the yeah. France are going to win it, let's let's be clear. He's he's not going to have had, had a quiet couple of weeks, is he? Nah, he, he'll do his thing for sure. Yeah. By the way, Obviously I just play- want to I just want to say when I say Belgium are the biggest disappointment, I just want to categorize that by saying no, 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 no. You said it. Really you don't well. need to explain yourself. You said it. It's out there already. It's already out there. There's nothing to worry about. And you think France is going to win it with Giroud yeah. being the top scorer, and not Mbappe yeah. or Griezmann or anyone like that? I said Giroud. Fair enough. I said yeah, fair enough. Benzema back, but no problem, man. No problem. Yeah, if those guys can play second second fiddle to Giroud, then everything's good. Then everything's good. Yeah. But anyway, you guys listening, be sure to let us know what you think. You know. Make tell me, are we talking sense or we sound a bit crazy? I think you do sound a bit crazy, but let me know. It's kickback underscore Nadam on Instagram and on Twitter. But anyway, today's show, okay? So perspectives, I think they can really help with understanding any particular situation. And I think everybody listens to the show really loves the game of football. So we've been lucky enough to have spoken with managers. We've spoken with like staff. We've spoken with players. 
And that's, I think that's been really good. But now it's the time to listen to somebody in the boardroom. Yeah. Okay. Do you think, you know, you're somebody who doesn't like to sit on the fence. Do you think it's easy to run a football club? No. How how would you run one? What would your, what would your ethos be? Just sack man. Would you go for like the Chelsea approach in terms of sacking managers, but always bringing success or go for like a long-term manager for stability? I'd, I'd make you manager, chief coach and director of football. <laughs> Nepotism at its finest, yeah. But nah. <laughs> no, no. But how would, how would you how do you think you'd do it? What do you reckon your style would be? Uh so I think that I don't think I would I would give managers time. That would be my style. Um I would put the players first. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And and All we'd right. win a lot. That would be. Oh, would be my okay. Fit. You'd win a lot. Yeah. Okay. Cool. 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 Yeah. Yeah. That sounds sounds really really easy. But surprisingly, not every team's doing that. But anyway, <laughs> let's get to today's show because we have the chairman of my former club, Queens Park Rangers, sharing a perspective. Which, as a player, I'll be honest, I wasn't really seeking it out. But now that I'm on the other side, I'd like to understand things just that little bit more. So I hope you enjoy it, UD, and hope the listeners do as well. And without further ado, here he is, QPR's chairman, Amit. Batia. Hello, sir. Chief, hey. what is going on? Hey, it's good to see you, man. So good to see you. So good to see you too. Is it early there? No, no, no. I'm actually, I'm in the UK. I'm in Manchester. Oh, oh you are. I thought you were back in the States. No, no, no. I, um, it was a good experience. It was a good experience, but like home is always where the family and friends are and stuff. So yeah, I'm back over here. Nice one, man. Nice one. Firstly, I want to say I really appreciate you giving me the time here. And this is going to be a lot of fun because for me, I'm somebody who likes to really understand football and the world and so on. So you're bringing a perspective which I haven't heard before and I'm really excited about hearing it. I hope I can do it justice. No, I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. So are you ready? I'm ready to go, man. All right. Okay. So today you find yourself as the chairman of QPR as of 2018, but you joined the club as a vice chairman in 2007. Is that right? It is. Okay. 14 long seasons, Chief. 14 <laughs> long. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. You could say that. But yeah. before we get into that period there, I want to know more about you as a person. So I, could you sure. share a little bit to me about, say, where you came from, where you were born? How did you get to this point? Sure, with pleasure. First of all, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. And no worries at all. It's an I, honor, honestly. I, it's my honor. I'm, I'm excited for it. Um, me, I've, I've been a bit of a nomad in, in my life, if I'm honest. I was born here in London. My parents had me here. And then very soon after, we moved to India when I was three. And then I was in India for 10 years, came back to the UK to do my A-levels here, uh, and then ended up going to university in America, worked there for a few years, came back here to the UK, uh, got a job here, started to work here, met my wife. We'd known each other since we were young. Mm. Uh, I was 15, she was 14. And we reconnected when I came back, when I was 21. And uh, and then just ended up staying here. I loved, I loved London. I had the option to go back to New York at the time. Um, but, you know, uh, had the option to continue to work here, had the option to get married and start a family here. And so London became home since 2001. Okay. Uh, and so I've traveled around a bit and, and made homes in different places, but 
uh, feel super settled here in London. I think this is long term now. Yeah, I, c- I can believe that. And you mentioned the fact that you say you were working and something which I want to know is for somebody who you are right now, what was your first job? So, you know, I, I studied economics when I was in college. And so my first official job was to work at an investment bank. I was at Merrill Lynch, then I was at Morgan Stanley. Yeah. Came to London, I was at Credit Suisse, first Boston. And I liked that world. I like banking. I like corporate finance. It's what I'd studied in school. It's, it was kind of part, part of the path that I'd always hoped to take. But in terms of other odd jobs, I've had everything. You know, I went to, to college uh, and I was, on a, I was a financial aid student. Um, and in America, if you're a financial aid student, they help you. So they, they paid half of my tuition. But they also guarantee you a job. So, you know, I worked at the ice cream parlor in school. I used wow. to stock, you know, I used to be a, a, at the grocery store. And so they, they uh, which is a bit of a gift, but they guarantee you a, a certain number of, of, of employable hours, which helps towards having some money at school and stuff. And, you know, I mean, for, for total clarity, my parents uh, had, had the ability uh, to, to help me more, but I was quite an independent guy. And, okay. You know, once I left home and I went to college, I wanted to be independent, but it was an awesome experience. And and so I had lots of odd jobs. I started a a business that used to import and export silver uh, oh, because okay. on a trip to India, I'd seen that silver was inexpensive in India, but quite expensive in the United States and found a way to import silver into the country. And uh, that was great because it gave me lots of extra pocket money in my uh, to spend. And as you probably know, when you're that age, you, you, you know, a few extra bucks yes. in, the, in the pocket goes a long, long way. So yes, yes, that's uh, I a found fact. ways to, to, to just supplement whatever I was getting from college. That's, that's very, very interesting. And which college was it that you went to? I was Cornell University, okay. which is upstate New York in Ithaca. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a nice college you went to there. It's a very nice college. And with all this being said, then you talk about, say, being involved in economics and stuff like that. Was sport ever a big thing for you? Because I think for most people who follow you on social media, they know that you love your golf. They know you love your golf. But was there ever anything else which you were sort of really into when you were younger? You know, I'm a sports nut. I I actually, the the way I ended up coming back to the UK was because I was quite a keen cricketer and I played quite a high, high level. So I came on tour from India to tour the UK for 30 matches. And at the end of the tour, a couple of schools said, hey, do you want to come and play, play for us? And I said, sure. And my parents were like, it was brave of them because at 14 or 15 years old to leave home mm-hmm. and, and come from India to here. But I had the opportunity to play cricket. And so I played to quite a high level. I played tennis. Um, I, you know, I play a lot of golf now, but I, 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 I still play quite a lot of squash, tennis, except for football, which I absolutely suck at. <laughs> the irony of it. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I suck at football, but I'll play any sport that you let me. And I'll watch any sport. So, I mean, the only thing I ever watch is the business news and sport. That's my life. Yeah, that's, that's very, very interesting. So to talk about business then, as somebody who has a stake in a football club, um, yeah. From the outside, it appears that as far as investments go, investment into football clubs itself isn't necessarily the same as investing in Amazon 20, 30 years ago. So how does that even come about? Like, how do people decide that they want to invest in a club? And then from there, what do you do? Because I imagine it's not available on eBay if, that, if it's that sort of thing that people believe. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I mean, I can tell you a little bit about, about my journey. So I was a big sports nut. Um, and then, and, and, and my entire family were sports nuts. And several years after we moved here, there was this thought about it would be great to be involved in football in the UK, just because it's, you know, it is to this country, what cricket is to India. Yeah. And, you know, it's a religion here and people love it and they're passionate about it. And 
it wasn't necessarily at that time QPR. I mean, we had to see what was available. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps the only criteria that, that, that we had at the time was it, it would be nice if it was a London club because then we can go to the matches and really feel part of it. And, 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 uh, and so a few different clubs. Um, but really, ours was born out of, out of an absolute passion for the sport. I think the biggest... Perhaps the biggest battle that that any team owner has, it's kind of battling your 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 heart and your mind because yeah. you know it becomes you 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 want to make decisions that are made with your head and are sound financial judgment or good for the long term of the club, but it's hard because it's you know where everyone's passionate and emotional and you and you want the club to succeed and you want to do well, and so I think it's that balance that's probably perhaps been the trickiest thing for us to get right and we made so many mistakes in the earlier years. Uh, that I think we're trying to rectify as time has gone on and experience has taught us things. But for us, it was definitely a passion project. But I think you, I think, I think you bring up a, a really important topic, and that is that the difference between owning an American sports franchise and one here at home is actually vastly different because mm-hmm. all American sports franchises really have done very well over an extended period of time. You could pick any of the leagues, and owners, owners and teams um, have run those teams very well, and, and all of the clubs are worth far in excess of what any of the owners have bought them, even even from a few years ago. I looked at a basketball team um, in 2011. Unfortunately, we never executed on it, but had we done that some 10, 11 years ago, uh, you know, it would be worth vastly more than it is today. But we haven't gotten that model right here in the UK, and I think you, I think you're right. It's because clubs are loss making. It's because the sanity of the league sometimes in question, especially at the lower levels where clubs do go into administration and bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's always th- that worry that hangs over people. And I'm not sure we've gotten the model correct yet, here yet. Um, but for us, I think we were clear right from the onset that this, this, this was a passion project um, and that we were doing it for the love of sport and for the love of football. Mm. And, you, you know, the, everything you said there is perfect for my audience because it's kind of 50-50 between people in America and people in the UK. So it's like you were speaking two different languages, but I have everybody on board that will understand at least one. So that's, that's, that's really, really interesting because as well with the American ownership model, when, well, to be fair, it's a gift and a curse, isn't it? Because within England, especially all around the world with football, the whole threat and feel of relegation, promotion, that type of thing is really, really high energy. But mm-hmm. then you look at the projects over in the United States and so on, and when you know that you will always get a share of whatever money is available for the league itself and the league is continually growing, mm-hmm. like that's a real buy-in, you know, that's an exciting mm-hmm. thought as an owner instead of the thought of, well, we can stay in the Premier League, but if but if we go down, right. then everything changes. But Yeah, but, but, but yes and no. I, I guess what I'm talking about is, and I totally agree with everything you've just said, all, all I mean is that within those leagues, yeah. you know, you have salary caps there. Yeah. And so, I mean, I love the idea of a salary cap. If you think about it, take the NFL where, you know, I think the least expensive teams probably worth, you know, several billion dollars today. But, you know, they have a salary cap. They have the same in basketball. And what it does is it levels the playing field to some degree, Mm -hmm. right? So you don't have the biggest spenders always winning everything. But rather with the draft system, you put that with the salary cap system, and then you have the league who makes who make decisions together in the best interest of the league. I think they protect the smaller clubs or the smaller markets. Yeah, and and that's all I mean. I I, I kind of feel like you know sometimes, especially at the in, in the in the championship and in and in other divisions, you have the haves and the have-nots. Yeah, sometimes it's just hard to compete. And you know, I I mean, I I I, 
I just think that there's something to be said for a slightly fairer yeah. playing ground for everybody to play on. Okay, that's interesting then, because with that being said then, as you walk through the door as the new ownership group at QPR, how do you really decide on what realistic ambitions are in that particular moment? Yeah, look, I mean, QPR for us happened by chance. We were looking around and I uh, was friendly with Bernie Eccleston and Flavio Bretori, the two guys with whom we bought the club in 2007. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, these guys were vastly experienced in sport. Bernie had built Formula One. Mm-hmm. Flavio had been in sport with racing and other things most of his life. And one of the things that I've learned in life is that I'm not very good at, 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 at very much. But what I'm very good at is to get into bed with people who are much smarter than I am. And, you know, we saw an opportunity. We said, here's people who know sport. They know how sport works. And uh, we'll, we'll get into bed with them and we'll, and, we'll, and we'll discover, like, what does it take to make something successful? Um, and it was a wonderful journey of four years that we shared together. And the ambition, perhaps... We should have been a bit more cautious because remember, we came into the door saying we're going to get the club promoted in four years. And it so happened that we did. But, you know, we had some very challenging seasons along the way. And I think there was a lot of learning there, right? Mm -hmm. Expectation management with a fan group and people who feel so emotional about the teams. It's it's super important. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in the subsequent years uh, with Tony Fernandez and, and Ruben, you know, I mean, there was a bit of euphoria when that started also. You know, there's lots of money spent and yep. big money people came in. And then we got bitten by FFP and other things. And we had to reevaluate that and say, well, what's the best in the long-term interest of the club? And it comes back to what I was saying earlier, right? It's balancing how you feel in your heart versus how you should make a decision with your head. And we've made so many mistakes along the way. I mean, you know it better than most. And I guess, I guess it's just about sort of trying to find the balance and trying to find how you can move the club forward sustainably for the long term. Yeah, that's, I think that sustainability is the, is the key thing. That's what it, it feels like compared to, say, the years. Like, I was there for six and a half years and there were some real moments where there was tons of investment and then there were times where it was more like a plan for the future. And, yeah. you know, it's in the space of, for the, for the club to go in such a wide direction in the space of such a short period of time, you know, it's probably sure. not ideal, but it does seem like it's on a better footing now. And um, with that then, so we talk about your ownership and so on. Let's be, at 2007, you're, you're like you're a young man now, but 2007, you're in your 20s, aren't you? And you're walking right. through the door. Right. How did you feel then? Because obviously, as you, as you said there, you speak to the people who know better about certain situations, but still sure. your face is there. Sure. So did you feel any sort of added pressure or difficulty in building trust amongst people when essentially, you know, you are a new face and a new young face in an organization or was it easy? Yeah, no, such a good question. And and something that I've often thought about Um, in the first year or two, if I'm honest, I I feel like I had to have enough humility to realize that I'm sitting around a table with people who are so much smarter than I am and so much more experienced that I didn't really say very much. I mean, I listened quite a lot. Um, my ownership in the team allowed me a, a voice, um, but I think I was cautious. I, I, I tried to make sure that I was deferring to the people who were smarter than me and more experienced than I was. What I thought I could do just as well as them at that time was to build a connection with the fans. Mm-hmm. And because, because you know they didn't have a lot of experience dealing directly with fan groups and stuff. And so for the first several years, I showed up to every fan group meeting and I would try to speak to as many fans as I could. I would sit in almost all games. I would sit with the fans rather than, 
in the the owner's box mm -hmm. because I felt like I was learning so much just being around fans and what was important to them. For example, for me, and I believe it till today, every fan wants their club to do well on the pitch. But yeah. you know what they but but what they really want is they want to be proud of their of their club off the pitch. When they're at the pub and somebody says to them, within the first three questions of meeting a new person in this country, you probably find out what football club they support. Yeah. But I think they want to be proud to answer that question. And that's because they want the club to do things correctly. So at QPR, for example, and, 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 and I know you did lots for the QPR and the community trust, working with children, working with the underprivileged, working with you know so many different facets of our community. Those were the parts that I felt I could get really involved with and, and understand and help the club forwards with. And for more than 10 years, I was chairman of that community trust and take so much pride in the fact that we did so much good for and continue to do so much good for the people around us. Um, even now with the renaming of the of the stadium yeah. to try to help to move a cause forward, you know, you're never too young to try to figure out what matters to people and to try to do well by them. And so at least in the early years, it was daunting. I won't lie. Mm -hmm. It's daunting to be around a table with Bernie Eccleston. Yeah. He's got a really strong personality. Yeah. Flavio had a super strong personality. Um, and, and I probably, I was, I was, I was probably better off keeping quiet for a lot of it, but, you know, eventually we found a, a happy balance and, and, you know, at least it's given me the opportunity to have built a, a great relationship with the yeah, fans. Yeah, 100%. And that sort of trust that's built with the fans is obviously very, very important. But to add some nuance to that, do you think you can have a great relationship with the fans and the management and the players, or do you think something has to be sacrificed? Oh, I mean... That is, that's such a complicated question. Let's try and unravel it. <laughs> so I think individually, I think you can have great relationships with people, yeah. right? At the end of the day, we're people. It's kind of, you know, I, I mean, we're friends and you left uh, a long time ago. I have great relationships with so many of our players that played rival teams. And so individually, I think you can have great relationships with them all. But for sure, what we have learned along the way is that the best thing to do with the fan base is to communicate. I think silence causes people to stress and yeah. worry. So I think communication is important. And for kind of being transparent is important also. And I think we've, we've learned. We, we, we didn't always do a good job. We've done that. The management and player part of it is, is a bit more complicated. I think at the end of the day, everyone's, everyone's a human being and you want to build good relationships with people. We had a board meeting last week and this came up as a, as a point of, of conversation. Um, but, you know, how much do you want to have interaction with people and how much empowerment do you want to give them directly, right? Yeah. That's quite important. Um, how much you want to make somebody feel welcome, but equally not step on, on somebody else's toes and undermine their authority in making that happen. Yeah. Um, and I think that is, again, that's just a, a balance. And I think, uh, I think it's a complicated balance. I think it's, uh, it's one that's filled with landmines, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's a fact, yeah. um, you know, but I think that, you know, I got to say with, with the ownership group we have now with Tony and Ruben, I mean, these guys are just, they're so solid, right? And they've, and when I think they've made mistakes in the past, I think they learned from those mistakes. And I think we all sat around that board table and said, here's things we're going to do the same. Here's things we're going to do differently. Here's what works and doesn't. And amongst that was how do you balance management and players? Because boy, you've hit a, a hairy subject that is that's definitely one of the biggest, thorn that, you know, that's one of the thorniest issues. Yeah, 100%. But I wasn't doing it to try and hit you with a gotcha question, but I'm just oh, very, very, I'm very, very in in intrigued because on this show, I've spoken to players, I've spoken to managers, and now to speak to somebody that's in the boardroom, you know, every section there is really important to a football club. Sure. You don't necessarily get, well, when you're a player, 
it's very hard to have a sense of sympathy, empathy or whatever for people in different positions because you can very much get caught in your own job. But now I'm on the other side and I can relax and not really face the day-to-day consequences. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready to hear about everybody's side of things. For sure. And with that then, um, the question I want to ask now is that, as I said, I've mentioned players and managers and so on. Like they come under a significant level of media scrutiny because it's always about their performance or is the team, how's an individual playing? How's a team playing? But from your side of things, media scrutiny when, you know, you are in charge of a whole thing itself. Like, how do you deal with it when every day, because you know how important football is and just sport is in general. Every day, somebody's telling you what to do. Somebody from the outside, you have to mm-hmm. invest. You have to remove this guy. You have to sign this guy. Right. You have to do right. this. How do you, how do you actually go about trying to make the right decision when you know that, you know, people are continually going to tell you that you're wrong, essentially? Wow, that you are good. <laughs> <laughs> so I would be lying if I said that the that it, that we, you just drown out the outside voices and you got to do what you think is correct yourself, because it's just not possible. That's not realistic, right? right? The answer is that, of course, uh, public opinion shapes decisions, right? Whether you want to do or not, or at least it informs decisions or at least it factors into decisions yeah or you feel responsible to to um to um or you feel responsible for some of those questions and and how you address them mm-hmm. um uh and that happens whether it be in the media and or, and now through social media right it's yeah. not just journalists who have a voice it's every player and every yeah. fan and every fan group and mm-hmm. every supporter who has a voice um but again, you know, I mean, I think that it comes down to, I think that, you know, it's our responsibility at this point in time to return the club whenever that whenever that day comes, to return the club to the fans in a position that is better than the position that we found itself in. Mm-hmm. But any, any, any journey is never a straight line, yeah. right? You know, hopefully the start point and the end point, the end point is much higher than the start point, but, you know, it's never a smooth road. And we've had, as you've seen, we've had good moments and bad moments, but I think overall the trajectory that we've been on is a good trajectory. So if the fans trust that the intention is pure and that the desire to make sure that the long-term success of the club is defined by making sure we're getting better and better Mm -hmm. or more and more sustainable and more and more successful in a sustainable way, um, then they have to trust some of those decisions, even if in the immediate they don't agree with them. Yeah, I think that we find that, and you know, I have maybe I'm, I'm delusional about it, but I feel like I have the great luxury of having built the trust of the fans of the last fourteen or fifteen years, yeah. where they give me the opportunity to make a mistake every so often, yeah. but to believe that I, we have the long-term interests of the club in mind. So. You know, I think it's kind of all of the above. It's building the trust. It's kind of communicating, but it's also hoping that they trust us back to make good decisions. Um, but most of the time, I get loads of hate. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, hate, hate troubles. I'll, tweet so something. I'll tell you, I, I tweeted a congrats to Brentford when they went up. And then that was trouble. <laughs> 99% of everything I got back was, you better delete that immediately. I got calls from the guys at our our PR guys and our communications guys. Yeah. And I was like, yo, are you sure you want to keep that on there? Yeah, that, that's, 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 <laughs> um, 
do. I know, I know. But I, I like I, I sense that energy as well because I was on the radio when they just got promoted. And yeah. I and I, I said congratulations to them, but it was quickly followed by but I'm a QPR guy. So hopefully yeah. the, hopefully QPR go up the next the next year. But that's that's it, isn't it? That's like it's that's the sort of gift and the curse of being attached to something where, which can be so partisan. Like to be right. with QPR means you have to hate Brentford. You have yeah. to hate Chelsea. There's right. no in between. There's no gray area. This is what you right. have to be. But, right. you know, with all that being said anyway, um, sitting at the top of the tree then, do you, do you feel a huge sense of accountability for everything that goes on below you? Or are you good at delegating? Because say, for example, if you heard that, say some sector or some group within the organization, say whether it's a player, whether it's a staff member, you know, whether it's a cleaner, whether it's somebody, you know, who's looking at the bins outside the stadium, if they show unhappiness, do you take that personally or are you the type who can leave that with somebody else to deal with and just not worry about it? You know, I guess the biggest difference between football and everything else that I'm involved in is that here, not only am I accountable, but I'm answerable to thousands of people because people know what's going on, yeah. right? It's very visible. It's very visual. Um, uh, I, I mean, when it comes to people and their jobs, I think that, I think that we've generally got, done a good job at making people feel happy and safe in, in, in how they work. I often say to people that you spend three quarters of your waking life working. Yeah. And so can you imagine one person who spends that three quarters of their waking life in a place where they feel valued and safe and empowered and they can make decisions and they build strong relationships? Imagine that person and their mindset versus another person who works the same three quarters of their working hour of their waking life, but they do it in a place where they don't feel valued or they don't feel happy or things that are important to them are disregarded. I mean, that's two very, very different people and two very, very different lives that these two people would lead in the long term. Yeah. I think that as leaders, it's our job to try to make sure that we provide an environment where people feel safe and valued. And you know, on the 24th of this month, we're going to welcome some of the people back to, who work at QPR back to save. And Ruben called me yesterday and he said, we should be there to welcome every single person back because they've had it tough. They haven't been here. Yeah. And it wasn't my idea. I didn't think of it. But that's why I say I surround myself with good people who come up with good ideas. And Ruben said, we've got to go. And, you know, we should welcome every single person, contract or otherwise, who's coming back to the stadium, who does all of the odd jobs. We should be there personally to welcome everyone. And, and I think that that's really important, you know, I think we're also pretty good at making sure that we hire good people to do their jobs. You know, Lee, who's our CEO, is really a fantastic guy. He's a very experienced guy. He's worked at other places. Sir Les, we all know, you know, he spent his entire life in this industry and understands people. And, you know, he's a good guy. You know, people get along with him well. They like him. And I think it's because we treat people well. So, you know, we, we haven't always been proud of our performances on the field to kind of come back to where yeah. we started but I definitely am proud of the way we conduct ourselves as a club, both internally at the club and with our people, as well as externally for the things that we stand for. Mm -hmm. I get that. And to link to something you've just said there, you said we've not performed perfectly well on the field, which is which is perfectly fair. You know, we've had some, even in my time there, there were probably two or three really, really bad periods, like really mm -hmm. bad, you know, the type where you do feel the pressure from the outside, but some of it, you know, it's... It's understandable because it was only a year earlier. We're in the Premier League. We're beating this team, beating that team and so on and so forth. But with that then, especially based in this current climate, have you found that being involved in football and having an Indian descent is something which um, has 
ultimately kind of made things a bit harder for you at times because this from my experience and from the experience of others you know when things are going well race and stuff like that doesn't matter but when things are going badly it seems like it's the first thing people realize yeah. so, so have you had any of that at all or do you think you've probably had a fair crap because again to reference something a bit different it feels like within england now there's a really strong anti-american ownership type situation that's going on right. you know what sure. i mean so has has anything like that affected you or have you been have you been fine for your whole time no, I mean, of course it happens, right? Of course it does. We've all experienced any, anybody who's who's I think international has at some point in time, uh, or isn't, you know, from from here. So at some point in time, experienced something, and I think over a period of time, you you either deal with it or you develop a, a thicker skin towards yeah. it. But I think more importantly, I think, I think it's kind of what do we do about it? Because what is happening currently? Yeah. The players online, the people online, the abuse of and racism. I mean, it is as disgusting an act as I think that we've experienced in, in many years, right? And I think it's become as visual as it has. I have to tell you, and I've got the file here sitting in front of me, and I think it's Tony Fernandez who did this, but every single board meeting now begins with what are we doing about the issue of race? Because we're all Indian and Malaysian owners of this club. All of our players have experienced it. Yeah. Other players have experienced it. And there's an enormous responsibility. And I mean, from the board meeting this week, I remember Tony started it off by saying, I want a report of when we did that social media blackout, if you remember, mm-hmm. you know, he's like, we did it, but I want a report of what does that actually mean? Like yeah. what actually happened? Like what was the impact? Because uh, otherwise it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, that's right. right. So what is the actual impact? And I think what we learned was, I mean, the impact's probably brutal but small for them in the short term because it's only a couple of days. Mm -hmm. But what it has done is it's brought those social media companies to the table. And so at least it's had the impact of bringing them to the table to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. Does it happen? Is it happening? And is it one of the most pressing issues? I can tell you as a mixed race owner, Surrounding myself with people who are not from here, but who are international uh, and being around players who I love and adore, uh, who I think I've had to go through this, that, that it's an incredibly tiring and frustrating and appalling situation that uh, I kind of hope that we're, that we're starting to bring more attention towards and, and, and hopefully we'll address it at some point. Yeah, that's 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 over. That's very. But I don't think it stops. I don't think it no. stops if you're a player or an owner. I, I mean, if somebody wants to come after you, they come after you. Yeah, like you are. I know, and that's that's the thing. Like social media, it really is a gift and a curse because I think for players to talk about people in, um, you know, in involved in football, you know, big stars or whatever. Your biggest fan now doesn't need to be somebody who lives within the postcode of the stadium itself. Mm-hmm. You know, your mm-hmm. biggest fan could be all the way across the other side of the world and they're desperate to be able to access you, talk to you and so on. Mm-hmm. But you've got a means to be able to do that. Your profile's so much bigger. Mm-hmm. But then the downside is, you know, we don't live in a perfect world and perfect situation whereby everybody that wants to come to speech is to speak to you about something positive or, you know what I mean, or not say something that's abusive. And it's, and it's disappointing, especially because when you look at, for me anyway, when you look at the model, the social media model, it's not designed to be kicking people out. It's there right. to draw more people in and keep them there. So it's when we, so when we it's try not. and say to them, you know, this has to stop, they'll always do the bare minimum because sure. it goes against their mission statement to do otherwise, doesn't it? You know? Sure thing, absolutely. I mean, when we get told all the time and things don't go well, and boy, there's been a lot of times, when we get told to pack up and go back and other things, it's not nice. It's not no. nice to hear 
Um, but I think the, the 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 level of abuse at this point in time, the hate that spewed, yeah, that's probably higher than I think I've, I think myself or anybody else has experienced it at this point in time. And I think it's I think it's it's that extreme level that it's in that's frankly shocking at the moment. Yeah, it is. And to have make one more point, which is a bit of a rant about it. I think for some people they say, oh, it's just social media, you know, it doesn't matter, so on and so forth. But, you know, social media in real life are intertwined sometimes. So if somebody says, I'm outside your house, I'm going to do whatever, why would you not believe that somebody's outside your house? Is it because it's, they wrote to you on Instagram? Well, no, this is this is real. So some of these threats that people hear and they say, just ignore it. It's very hard to ignore because the real world does exist and there's a real person on either side of the, side of the sure. screen. Sure. But anyway, 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 I've, I've taught that, I've taught that. So... You mentioned this earlier, and I wanted to jump in at that point, but I thought for the flow, it'd probably be better here. Based on how you came into the club in 2007, would you say it's in a better position now than it was then? Or would you say it's not quite there yet? No, no, I think the short answer is it's in a far, far better position than when we found it. The club was floundering, unfortunately, uh, when we got involved. Uh, It was in a very, very poor financial health. The uh, stadium itself, uh, the infrastructure behind it, it was all uh, in a a very poor condition. So if I look at an extended period of time between then and today, the club's in a far, far better position. And that's what I meant when I said the journey is not, but the end point's got to be better. So are we proud of that? Of course. Do we wish that we had had success like some of the other clubs around us? You know, look at what Leicester's done when they won. Yeah, the FA Cup and I and I reached out to you because I thought you did such a wonderful job for ESPN that time. But um, when they won that cup, uh, you know the celebrations for the family and and for Vijay, mm-hmm. I thought they were incredibly emotional because what they've done for the city of Leicester for the football club. I mean, it's it's remarkable and there's wonderful success stories like that. And of course, we haven't had that kind of success, but do I think we're a, we're a more sustainable football club now than we were there. Absolutely. Yeah. Do I think that the club is in a better condition? Sure. Do I think we'll, we'll continue getting better? Absolutely. We're building a new t- training facility and because we understand that we need to kind of bring uh, players into the system rather than always being able to buy them because yeah. we are a small club. We've got a small football stadium and that limits the amount of revenue that we can make. We're playing in the championship and that limits the amount of revenue that you can make. And then FFP steps in and limits what you can invest as an owner in the club. Yeah. So, got to find other ways of doing it um but are we in a better position chief for certain we are yeah yeah that's um that's that's i can see that i can fully see that and obviously you know to look from the outside and see the success because they played in the premier league for those two years it feels like it's the wrong direction but those two years in the premier league or three years rather they didn't feel like they were going to be sustainable and i think that's that's the key because you could speak you could argue that the journey may be complete if you get back to the Premier League again. But mm-hmm. if you end up yo-yoing like maybe the other team that's in West London at the moment is going through, mm-hmm. that's not necessarily <laughs> like a big sign of success, I would say, because it's, right. you know what I mean? You want to be no, there. And I, yeah. and, I, and, I, and I think you can see that from the last uh, from the last two years. You know, we've been in a position where we've had to sell good players and hey, no fan wants you to sell your best player. No one wants to do it either, but sometimes you've just got to do it. Yeah. Um, but and we've grafted away and grafted away and we, you know, we had a, a, a very respectable end to this season. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, just ended. Uh, I think by by four in the second half of the season, we were perhaps in third place. Obviously, first half was very tough. And so, you know, I think again the trajectory is good, and I'm, I'm excited for next season because I think uh, I think we're doing it the right way. Okay. 
So just a couple more questions and if that's all right. In fact, no, I'll, I'll start with a, a mini rant. I apologize for this. I apologize in advance. So I've spoken with a ton of managers, loads of players and stuff about how I could never really get my head around the desire to stand on the side and have no control over what's happening in front of you. Right. You know, but at least with a coach, they can train you for a week, even if the game could go wrong. So then when I see somebody or people that are in your position, I'm guessing that's even harder. So ultimately, like, what are you thinking? What drives you to be in that position of helplessness with an investment there as well? What 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 is it? What is it that makes you just be that person? You know, we have we have literally one or two important decisions to make. You know, I think the most important decision that we make is who are the people who are going to run the club. So who's your manager? Yeah. Who's your like who's your director of football? If you get those things right, at that point in time, you've just got to trust that those guys are going to make the best decision possible. Yeah. But sitting up there, once you've made those decisions, when they haven't gone well, oh man, it's awfully, <laughs> <laughs> it's awfully frustrating. It's awfully frustrating. If I was any better of a footballer, I'd be asked sometimes to be subbed on, but I mean, <laughs> the worst player you've ever seen. No, it is frustrating. Of course it is. But you know, we trust the process. Yeah, that's, that's, that sounds like something Joel Embiid would say in the uh, NBA. Or have you got that from somewhere else? Yeah. Um, okay, so to close then, in terms of your QPR time, are there any moments in the 14 years which you'd love to relive again? Like for me personally, um, while I was playing, the two best moments was the uh, playoff semi-final second leg against Wigan. I remember yeah. arriving to the stadium, the fans were outside like an hour before and yeah. then going into the stadium. I think James Birch ironically scored, but the crowd was incredible that day. That's one of the best moments I've ever had. Like when people say the stadium is tight, yeah. it felt like they were on the field with us that day. That yeah. moment and then the playoff final when Bobby scored because I think I had the best view in the whole stadium being right yeah. in the middle of, right in the middle of the field as he went into the top corner so right. those are my moments but do you have any you'd love to relive again? I mean look I think that the pinnacle of what we've done so far is, is, is those two promotions right and the first one to kind of win the league as champions there was something very special there but I remember a moment I remember we were playing Leicester and it was kind of 84th or 85th minute and I'm quite a nervous watcher. Like, I'll, I'll think we're going to lose every game before, yeah. before it kicks off. And uh, Ishmael Miller was on loan with us at the time. And yeah. I him on the left. And he starts charging down the left. And I turned to uh, my wife's dad was sitting next to me. And I said, we're going to score and we're going to go up as champions. And he, nobody had ever heard me say something so brash. It's not <laughs> and he went down that left and he scored for us. And I think it was that moment that we knew that we were going to get promoted. I mean, perhaps as champions, but we were going to go get promoted. And the stadium erupted. Mm -hmm. And I get goosebumps just reliving that moment right now. But it was one of the greatest sensations and feelings that I think I'd ever had. Um, and then, of course, the second one was we got promoted the difficult way, didn't we? When yeah, we went yeah to say the least, yeah. And again, you know, I, I didn't want to sit up in the box with, with the other owners. So I was out in the stands with the fans and I had my... My son with me, who was five or six, six or seven years old at the time. And it's a funny one because that season, my wife had been to two games and we'd lost both of those games. <laughs> okay. Now it's the playoff finals. We need, we need everything to win. And so I said to her, she couldn't come to the game, but she wanted to be close enough to the stadium yeah. so that if we won, she could be there for the trophy. Yeah. So my wife sat in her car driving around Wembley that day, <laughs> just waiting and waiting. And then, of course, you know, we get, you know, we get a red card yeah. and then eventually we go up as champions. 
and we get that. And unfortunately, she never actually made it into the stadium because they wouldn't let anyone. Oh, in. Yeah, that's understandable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, got left outside. But obviously, to go up at Wembley in that fashion when Bobby scored that goal with our yeah. backs against the wall yeah. for me with all of the fans in the stands yeah. and having my my boy with me who was six years old I I had a hoodie and sunglasses and I just said no one talked to me because I was in so I was just you know there was so much pressure yeah and at that moment when when that when that ball went in I mean you know it's incredible it's one of those, isn't it? Yeah. I think, I think, I think, I, I don't think we'll ever, I don't think any of us will ever forget it. It was pretty spectacular. So here's, here's this penultimate By the question. Way, thank you for asking me that question. It's, it's just put me in such a great mood. Honestly, that's the way that it is. Yeah. Sometimes when you, you forget those moments until you have uh, to relive them, then all of a sudden you realize how incredible it was. Yeah. You know, that was, because we shouldn't, by all accounts, we probably didn't deserve to win that game, but we sure. fought to the very, very end and Bobby scores that goal. And sure. there's so much context and subtext and stuff going on within it as well. It was, it was incredible. That's one of my best days in my career. But yeah. sorry, what the question I wanted to ask was potentially at some point in the future, you won't be a QPR owner. So right. when that moment comes, how would you want to be remembered by the stakeholders of the football club? Wow. Well, uh, I mean, I think it's simple. I think that I, I, I truly define success as being slightly better today than you were yesterday. Yeah, And I think that if you put that forwards towards the club, I think that if the fans believed that I always had their best interest at heart and that we did the, the best that we could and that we eventually gave them the club back in a better position that we found it, uh, because I define that as, as success, yeah. and that they're proud to speak about their club uh, off the pitch and all of the things that the club does well, uh, that would be a great way to be remembered, you know, because those are the values that matter to me. And I kind of feel like those are the values that I can have an Im impact on. And I'd like to be judged on, on the basis of, of those credentials. Okay. So here's the final question. Mm -hmm. And just so, just as a bit of a warning here, there are QPR current and former players who do listen to this show. So I would like to ask you, to pick a five-a-side team of your favorite players during your time at QPR? <laughs> Let's do it. Let's it's, go. I mean, I've got to have Adele in that team. Yeah, that, that goes without saying, yeah. He's in permanent think, marker, no pencil. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think Adele definitely goes into that team. Uh, I've got to have the Chief. The Chief was with us six and a half no, years. No, go on then. I'll throw myself in there. I'll throw myself in there. Yeah, why not? Uh, I throw Charlie Austin in there. Yeah, he's good for a goal or two. For sure, a goal or two. <laughs> Gotta have Ebbs, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ebbs is always, and I love him. And I just think he's like you know, football throws up every once in a while just really good people uh, yeah. along with just a God-given talent. And he's for special. me, he's just one of the nicest people that I've met, and yes. I wish him so much success. Yes. Um, what have we got? We got one left. Just one left. You listen, you can go goalkeeper or you can go rogue and just have five outfielders. It's completely up to you. Um, Everybody's listening now. Everybody's yeah. listening. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sticking Senny in goal. How's that? Yeah, don't mind it. Don't mind it. Don't mind yeah. it at all. That's uh, I like that team. I'd enjoy playing in that. I think that's a pretty strong team. What do you think? Yeah, I'd, I'd enjoy playing in that. I'd definitely enjoy playing that. I think I'll do a lot of the defending, but I'll enjoy playing in <laughs> There's no one tracking back yet. Not one person, but thankfully no they'll score goals. Back. Thankfully they'll score goals, though. But 
that's 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 all for today and i want to say thank you very much it was an absolute pleasure honor privilege i'm grateful for you allowing me the opportunity to play for the club as well during that time and even though there were ups and downs in that six and a half years you know I look back very fondly it's given me some of the best memories of my career and of my life so thank you very much for that i've had a blast buddy thank you for having me on we 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 only have great memories of you we we love you and we miss you and i hope you're going to come back and see us soon. I'll, I'll be back i'll be back don't worry about that but all great, right, buddy. great to see you. Thanks for having me again. No results. Take care. Bye, mate. So there you have it. Thanks for tuning in, like always, especially to all those who've subscribed to the show. But don't worry yourself too much if you haven't done so already, as there's still plenty of time to do the right thing so you don't miss out on any of our future releases. And also, a big thank you, like always, to Mr. Producer Man Ryan Hale, yet again making everything sound sensational. And just so we're clear, as another episode passes by, I still look forward to the day when you finally arrange a guest for me. But I guess no audio file is perfect, eh? Love to you all again if you've made it this far. And just know we'll be back real soon. Bye for now.